Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Do you know it's powerful when you can hear a story of overcoming, of moving forward, of being resilient by finding a new way and learning from what you've been through. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm here with the author of the book, Like a Moth to the Flame, and we are going to talk with her, not so much about all the awful things that happened, but about how she moved forward and how you can too. So stay tuned. Welcome to Save Your Sanity Podcast. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. Are you living with the chaos, confusion, and uncertainty that a toxic person loves to create? Is a partner, parent, ex, sibling, child, or coworker causing you to second-guess yourself? That can be crazy-making. I'm here to help you save your sanity. So let's get down to it and figure some things out now. Stay tuned. Welcome. I'm glad you're here, and I hope you found value from listening to another episode and found yourself back here again. And if this is the first time you've listened to Save Your Sanity, I'm glad you found us. We're here to help you recognize what's going on, the patterns, traits, and cycles in a toxic relationship, then to realize the impacts on your life, move on from there to realign your values, your vision, your beliefs, and your sense of what's next for you, and regain the confidence to love and trust again. That's the journey that happens when we have been caught up in a toxic relationship, and that's what we're all about here today. My guest is Lana Wolf. She's the author of this new book, Like a Moth to the Flame, and then it has this very powerful subtitle, a fatal attraction. We've all seen that movie, right? So you know what that looks like. So as I said in the introduction, we're not going to ask her to relive things. My particular approach to the therapeutic process is to tell my clients that they can tell me the story, they must tell me the story, but stop telling the story to other humans. So she did a very wise thing. She wrote the story down. You want to read it, go buy the book. I'm not going to tell you the story again. So welcome to the show, Lana. Thank you, Roberta. Nice to be here. It's a difficult thing when our trust is what gets us in trouble. When we actually want to have human-to-human contact, we see the good in other humans, we expect other humans to be good or safe or respectful. In fact, we expect other humans to share our values, don't we? Yeah. I mean, I was totally oblivious to the danger I was in. I was trying to help somebody. I was, you know, fell in love with somebody. And there were obviously red flags that I just didn't notice, didn't pay attention to. Well, one of the things in your story, just that little bit, is when we're falling in love, we kind of had our rose-colored glasses on. And it is really, really hard for these to show up when you're wearing rose-colored glasses. They kind of disappear into the landscape. And that's because we've always been safe before. 
or we've usually been safe before. So we don't start saying, well, I've got to be on the lookout all the time for unsafe humans, do we? And it was also the mental illness and the alcoholism. I had never been exposed to alcoholism. I had never been exposed to any of that. And it's like, I'm just trying to help somebody. I, you know, oh, isn't enough love going to make him better? Oh, such a big statement there because so many people in toxic relationships are quite good natured. They're quite empathic. They've been taught to go the extra mile, to to uh, compromise, to rationalize, to justify the behaviors of other humans because they're going through a bad patch or they haven't had a good upbringing. So we do those things, don't we? Yeah, make me feel sorry for him because he didn't have the good upbringing and all the other things that, again, just put the uh, rose-colored glasses where I just didn't see my life being in danger. No, and we just don't think about that with another human. I think we have a disconnect too, Lana. I'm interested in your take on this, that we watch things on television, but we think they're fictional. We think they're happening to other people. We kind of look at them as though they're way over there and we don't personalize the experience because we haven't had it. And it was, it was, I can help. I can see it in somebody else, but not in myself. I can see somebody else. It's like, Oh no, don't be with that guy, but not in myself. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a totally different thing when you're living it. Well, it sure is. And as I was reading your book in the beginning, I'm going, no, 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 don't live there. No, no, don't go out there at night. No, no, don't talk to that person. You know, all of my radar was going off. This is going nowhere good. I can see how you set up for the difficulties I knew you were going to have because I've, I've talked to you. And yet other people would think, that was just a very kind thing to do. It was a human thing to do. It was a natural thing to do. So you moved into a neighborhood that was really probably not the safest neighborhood at night. I had no fear. I, I was very well taken care of by other people in that neighborhood, but it was when I actually took the neighborhood out and into a different environment that it's like, oh, again, just put him in a better environment. He'll get better. Things will be better. And it just didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Well, I also have to admit that as I read that part of the story, I'm going, no, leave him in Colorado. No, don't take him. Like, <laughs> because of course, this is my life, helping people with toxic relationships. And I'm just seeing all these red flags. And I'm, I'm just trying to caution you. I'm yelling at the book, you know, don't, don't, don't go there. And uh, yet we don't understand that until we've lived it, till we've seen it, till we've felt it, till we've really had the effect of it sometimes. And then we have to recover. So what's your greatest learning from this experience? My thing I think is life is short and I did a total 180 in what I do for life. I mean, it's not the corporate job, not the 40 hours, 60 hours, you know, every day it's, I fill my bucket. I go on things that I wanted to do. And now I take the time to do it. Like I went on the Grand Canyon last year. I do more hiking. I do more um, walks on the beach. Um, Yeah. The year after that happened, my challenge to help me overcome things was spending time in nature. And I did 14 14ers, which are mountains, 
like uh, 14,000 foot in elevation in Colorado. I did a lot of time alone, a lot of hiking. You see, and that rings a big bell for me too. And I don't want to make anybody afraid, but do you know, after this experience, hiking, which can be a solitary experience for some people because they go day hiking and it's something you just have to have some radar for, don't you? You know, I, at that time, I had two dogs. Nobody was getting near me <laughs> unless they uh, had permission to get near me. And so... Very wise. Yeah, I was not afraid being alone hiking. Um, there were some days I didn't see anybody. There were other days, you know, it was a mountain with a thousand people. But at the same time, it made me feel, you know, it helped heal. It helped me heal me a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, nature is very healing. And allowing ourselves to be by ourselves is also very healing. Sometimes, though, we have fears. Do you have any fears as a residual from this? I don't remember having fears even during the attack. Um, I, 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 it's, it's not normal, I don't think, but I'm not afraid of death. So I'm not afraid of things that most people would be afraid of. Mm-hmm. Has it changed your fear of other humans? I don't think my fear of other humans, it helped me set boundaries with other humans. I do not tolerate a lot of things that I would probably would have allowed before. Um, yeah, I stand up for myself a lot more than I used to. Mm-hmm. Was that difficult to learn or was that immediate after your experience? Uh, a learning curve, a definite learning curve. And sometimes I swing too far the other way. That's like, you know, no, you can't do that. You can't treat me that way. And, you know, if I lose friends, I lost friends. And it's like, so, okay, what, what is acceptable and what's not acceptable in behavior and letting people know it's like more communication in people that I relate with of no, don't talk to me like that. Or no, I don't want to um, be talked down to like that. Mm -hmm. So the communication is a lot better. I think now with people. So for those of you who haven't read the book, I'm going to ask Lana to give us the Cliff's Notes version. As I said at the top of the show, as a therapeutic professional, I don't ask people to retell their stories over and over. And the reason is because each time we retell the story, the cells of our body relive the story. And we don't want to be doing that to our bodies. Yes, tell the police. Yes, tell the healthcare professional. Yes, tell the mental health professional. Tell the people very closest to us so they can understand our journey. But then there comes a time it's important to stop telling the story. So would you give us the Cliff's Notes version of Like a Moth to the Flame? Um, well, I attracted a guy that I thought, again, I thought I could help. It's like, I'll give you a job. I'll give you this and fell in love. And he had mental illness and he had, you know, it felt like multiple personalities and there was a little boy time and there was a, this evil monster time and it was unpredictable and I didn't see it coming. And I spent um, one night that he almost killed me and he actually confessed to killing me. So He's in jail, and I had to move on with life. 
Mm-hmm. That's what, where I, I began. I spent a lot of time in nature after that, that day. What was the span of time between meeting him and then never seeing him again? Mm, two years. Wow. So you put up with a lot. You had a lot of questions. You probably gave a lot of latitude and a lot of chances. Was that true? A lot of chances. There was times in between that we were separated. Um, he went back to Illinois for several months. He actually had been in jail for a few months in between. So of that two years, we were together, on, you know, on again, off again, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Well, it's an incredible blow to find out that someone that you loved, mental illness, alcoholism, whatever there is intervening, has the capacity and the willingness to hurt you physically. We know that they have the capacity to hurt us emotionally because they say or do things when they're under the influence or they're afraid. But to actually become physical with us. Did that happen for very long before the event? No, the first year was was really, really good. Um, we went on hikes and we did a lot of things together. We were fixing up the house. So the first year, I mean, I don't know, the drinking maybe got a little worse. And while I was at work, he did not do well with being alone. And he got involved with more drugs. And I didn't pick up on that right mm-hmm. away. And that was, again, where, um, that was probably where a lot of the personality stuff came up, up, but it took me, like, after the fact to see a lot of it, Mm -hmm. the timing and everything. Was there an expectation that he would work? He was kind of working for me, with me. I was, I do flip houses on the side, and so he was doing a lot of handyman work around for me, and he he would do side jobs. So he was working part-time. Okay, so he was being responsible and contributing to the relationship in a financial way. Yeah, he was paying the rent. And the reason I asked that question, Lana, is that so many times, you know, you'll see a graphic on Facebook often, it kind of goes around and it says, no one loves you more than a narcissist without a place to live or without a job. (laughs) So that's why I'm asking that question, because people who are toxic and are going to create toxic relationships with you want you to take care of them and make you wrong for not being compassionately taking care of them and giving them everything that they want. And then they make you wrong for not doing it well enough, even though they're not contributing at all. So that's why that, that was an important question. So he was doing his bit and doing what he'd promised to do. And that was great. So therefore that red flag was not there. Yeah. The red flags really didn't come until quite a bit later. I mean, yeah, there were red flags, red flags, and you saw the red flags in the book. But to me, you know, even the the personality disorder, like the the first time, it's like, oh, that's just lack of sleep, or that's just something. And I would, like, blow it off. Well, that's what I meant about empathetic, healthy people. We rationalize it, and it's quite plausible. You know, they're, they're, they've been up for three nights in a row. Of course, they're irrational. They're very, very tired. So, of course, they're going to be offhand. And we do that because that's what normal, healthy people do. <laughs> and I can see it because I was sleeping and I was going to work and I was living a normal life. 
So I didn't see what he was doing, how much he was sleeping. And uh, like I said, I missed a lot of the stuff because I was focused on my life at the time as well. Mm -hmm. So for listeners who are in a toxic relationship and perhaps are just beginning to tweak to the fact that maybe I'm going the extra mile a little too frequently and I'm getting tired, what would you say would be a good way to calibrate when to wake up and smell the herbal tea? Um, I should have stopped. Like the first time, he was very, it was the suicide attempts, right? I was taking, ended up taking care of him more and more and more. And then he kept playing the pity party card. And if I didn't do something or spend enough time with him or whatever, then he would do something, um, slice his wrist, take too many pills, and I would end up taking him to ER and suicide watch. Mm -hmm. Did he threaten or did he just do those things? He actually did things. Because one of the things that hijackals do, these toxic people, is they love to see if they can have enough power by just threatening to do them. And if that moves you to take care of them, then they're happy and they'll often never go to the point of actually doing it. So it speaks to the level of his mental distress that he would actually just do it because that's much more encapsulated in his problems than in the relationship problem. I was actually taking him to the bus station to send him on his way packing and he downed a whole bottle of pills. So rather than go to the bus station, we went to the hospital. Um, well, that yeah. was in a very immediate fix on his behalf to say, I am frightened beyond words. Yes. You know, I cannot, I cannot face anything that is beyond this moment. And I, I want to make that very clear distinction because people who are toxic and have the traits, patterns, and cycles of those with personality disorders they are more likely to manipulate and threaten than they are to actually do it. They will do it. But when I hear this story and I hear that the person did it immediately, they didn't threaten their own fear, their own concern, their own inadequacy and insecurities rose up and the only solution they could find was to down a bunch of pills. And that's a very immediate solution, tells us so much about him as opposed to the toxicity of the relationship. It was. And after leaving, I actually started going to the NAMI um, friends and family. And it's all the things I wish I would have known right. when I knew him and mm -hmm. known the, the red flags for him and better how to deal with him. Mm -hmm. uh, because the pill incident was only one incident of several where he actually self-harmed. Yes. So I hope everyone recognizes that distinction, the difference between threatening. Because so many times in my groups, people will say, well, oh, he, my partner just threatened to um, commit suicide and in a text. What should I do? And the answer is always call the police and ask them to do a wellness check. And that is a very important thing to do when you're remote from somebody is they want you to go and save them. They want you to do what you can do, but you are usually not the person who can do it. And the 
professionals can, the first responders can. And when you're dealing with a toxic person, not so much uh, what you were describing, Lana, but a toxic person, they don't want you to be calling anybody to help them. Their mission is to get you to be so concerned that you put yourself in jeopardy on their behalf. But when you're dealing with somebody who has mental health issues, and that is the major concern, and I'm distinguishing mental health issues uh, from personality disorders, because a mental health issue is a disease, right? It is mental illness, where a disorder is a whole other matter. It's a created disorder. Um, It's important to know those distinctions, And most times, people who threaten with personality disorders, hijackals who use it as a threat, very seldom carry through. And when you don't respond to them, what they do is they make you wrong for being lacking in compassion. Yes, there was a lot of that too. It's like, you just don't care enough. You just don't love me enough. If you don't do this, and it was hard because there were so many times he did follow through and it's like, well, what's a threat and what's going to be real? And I just, you never know. Right. And that puts you in a difficult relational situation, which we always have to take note of. Are you in a partnership or are you being called to parent? I played the mother. <laughs> And that balance is something that if we're wise in a relationship, we check out. Because when we're called to parent all the time, we can't help but be resentful and we feel a great sense of loss of partnership. And so it may call forth in us that compassionate peace, but it has loss in it as well. Like no longer do I have a partner that with any chance of equality, reciprocity, and mutuality, which are the three uh, hallmarks of a healthy relationship, in my opinion, you don't have that opportunity when somebody has mental illness. It's not going to happen that way. And then you get called to parent. Then you get tired. Then you go into the, how long do I do this? A good person should, you know, so many ways to question our reality and decide, you know, am I, what are my values and how do I live them and demonstrate them in the face of this great difficulty? So important. So do you think you would have left if you hadn't had this culminating incident? The incident was, um, I took him back temporary. It was cold. He didn't have a place to sleep. He was only going to be there for two nights or three nights. And um, yeah, it was totally unexpected. I was going to bed to go to work and he was not ready for that because again, it was coming up to his deadline. He knew he was going to have to leave the next day. And um, you know, that, that monster that came out again, the, the time before, almost for a week, he had been the normal everyday person that I had loved. Mm-hmm. And even though I knew that you know, I gave him the deadline, that, that trigger, whatever in him, that trigger was that night. Which is the difference, really the difference in the, where it shifts over into the mental illness part of the equation. Because his fear of uncertainty and insecurity and instability was far greater than anything at that moment, I would guess. Yeah. Um, so therefore, he he lashed out. 
he was angry the world was not right you were the face of the world <laughs> he he heard voices and i really think it was another attempt at suicide in that he thought i had called the police he and thought the police time, would kill him he, every time he heard the wind outside every time he heard something was another round of attacks trying to get me to yell because the police were going to come in and shoot him mm -hmm. and the police never came because i never called there are a lot of people in that circumstance who are looking for always someone to blame for everything, and they will attempt to do suicide by cop, as they call it. You know, I don't have the the wherewithal to take my own life, but I will put myself in that situation. So very, very difficult. So when you ended up being hospitalized, I remember in your story, he's telling the police, I killed her, didn't I? Yeah. He <laughs> walked I mean, up to the first cop and said, yeah, I, I killed her. And how did he respond to finding out he didn't? That was, again, well, he kind of blacked out. He doesn't necessarily, he, he slides in and out of what he remembers and what he doesn't remember. So he was having flashbacks of doing certain things or seeing certain things like, you know, the room and, and the mess in the room and everything. So he was having flashbacks, but yet at the same time, he confessed to almost everything he did. Matter, matter of fact, there were, you know, I was sitting in the hospital being examined and he, they called and said, well, what about this stab wound and what about that? And it matched up exactly to what um, so he was cognizant throughout the experience at some level at some level yeah mm -hmm. all right well i want everybody to know that this fascinating conversation is with my guest lana wolf and i there's a few things you need to know about her obviously she's an author she has this new book lana wolf writes like a moth to the flame of fatal attraction you know, it, if you want to read her story, you can read it there. And also she is a speaker and a life coach because overcoming this trauma of this near-death experience, this near-fatal experience, um, which is different than a near-death experience. So let me reword it, a near-fatal experience. And she took back her life. And I love the phrase that you have now about what you've taken from this is fill your bucket before you kick the bucket. <laughs> Lovely talking about resilience and overcoming limiting beliefs and stepping up and re-examining your life and where you're going with it all. So tell us about your focus now. My focus now, you know, it's been helping other women overcome that fear and anxiety of getting out of those bad relationships. And you know, the bucket list is a destination. It's a goal. But I also say sometimes it's just the daily acts of what you do, like buy yourself some flowers or take a walk in the park or, you know, go pet a dog. It's the little things that bring you joy that, you know, raise your level of happiness. Mm -hmm. And when you spend time for yourself, there's so many things, so many benefits. There's, you know, a longer life, less stress, more memories, more energy. And if you fulfill those bucket lists at the end of your life, you'll have less regret. And that's one of the things that triggered me also to do these is my mother sitting in the nursing home with things that she didn't get to do. 
Right. And I, I think that phrase, living your life with fewer regrets, is an important consideration for all of us because we get so tied up in the day-to-day and what's going on at this moment. It's really wise for us to back up and say, let me look at the whole picture here. Is this really what I want to be doing? Is this what I want to be doing this much of at this time? Is it what I want to be doing at this time? Am I leaving something off? Am I leaving something out? Am I saying, oh, I'll do it later, and yet it would bring me joy or contentment or whatever good feeling that it might bring me, but I'm postponing that. And so I hear in your story that you decided not to postpone anything any longer. That's the live for each day. And yeah, there's planning for this and planning for that, but it's still taking time to experience it now. Really good. Well, thank you so much for being my guest, Lana. Thank you for having me, Roberta. My guest is Lana Wolf. I told you about her book. You can find her at lanawolf.com, and that wolf comes with an E at the end. So L-A-N-A-W-O-L-F-E.com, lanawolf.com. The story is a difficult one, and it's difficult to read. You have to put it down and pick it up a few times, maybe. I did, and I'm used to hearing those stories. So read it. And, and relate to it if it's true for you because you can learn from her journey. Fortunately, it's a rare journey, but not nearly as rare as you might think. So go to lanawolf.com. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. I'm so glad you've spent this time with me to help you save your sanity. Helps me save mine too. So until we talk again, please visit me at transformingrelationship.com. Listen to other episodes of the podcast. If you're enjoying this, you want to hear other things very, very specific, or go on over to my YouTube channel for Relationship Help, F-O-R, Relationship, H-E-L-P. Lots of videos there on very specific things like setting boundaries and all the little things that you, you know that would be helpful to do. So come to Transforming Relationship. It'll take you everywhere anyway. And until we speak again, be really good to yourself because it's important to remember that you matter. Treat yourself that way. Talk soon. Thank you for joining me on the Save Your Sanity podcast today. I hope you've had some new insights some ideas and strategies to help you gain clarity and confidence for moving forward toward greater emotional health and safety. You deserve that, and so do your children. If you found value here and would like to support this podcast with a dollar or five each month, please do so at patreon.com slash saveyoursanity. Learn more about how to work with me via video conference, join my optimized circles, or subscribe to this podcast on my YouTube channel at my website, transformingrelationship.com. Talk soon.